I invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and we'll begin reading in a moment in verse 22. I do want to welcome uh, all those in our celebration service and in our summit service and those that are watching online and our broadcast as uh, we continue to uh, kick off this new year. I'm excited uh, for all that the Lord has for us and for our church in the days to come. I want to invite you uh, this morning in both worship services uh, to stand as we read God's word today. Can we do that? Let's all stand. We stand today just as a reminder that the words that we read are not the opinion of man, but the words we read are the words of God. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives to submit are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Now skip down to verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we pray that you open our hearts and minds and that your Holy Spirit will teach us through the words that are spoken this morning, the truth in your word that we need to embrace. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, the verses that I just read are perhaps some of the most controversial verses in all of the Bible. And you didn't need to be told that, right? You know, there's first of all controversy about gender. Uh, there was a time not so long ago when people in America celebrated gender distinctives. But it seems today that much of our culture hates gender distinctives. Uh, I did some reading this week online and I found one advocacy site that suggested that all gendered products, which I don't even think was a phrase a few years ago, but all gendered products such as birth announcements for boys and girls, kids products with the words princess or king on them, and all clothing styles that are cut for different male and female bodies should be banned. It says, these products, and I quote, remind us constantly that gender is important and that it matters if you're male or female. Can you imagine uh, such a toxic thing that we might cause people to think? I um, saw this week a famous cartoon, now famous cartoon by Jay Hubble, uh, that is used to teach children the evil of male and female genders. 
And I read it closely. I can give you the gist of it. It begins by saying, what if we told kids that there were only two kinds of animals, dogs and cats? And then we told those children that they had to take all the other animals, sharks and snakes and birds and spiders and bacteria, and they had to put those animals in one of two categories. It's either a dog or it's a cat. And this person said, Mr. Hubble, that would be silly. And I think he's right. Uh, he used that as a, as a reason why we should reject the idea that there is male and female. And then I read another webpage that listed the evil of gender reveal parties. Do you know what that is? You announce whether you're going to have a, a boy or a girl. And here are the three reasons why you shouldn't do that. Number one, the risk of forest fires. I'm just telling you what it said. Number two, the hurtful association of pink and blue colors with boys and girls. And finally, the toxic environment that it creates for children to grow up in. It had some alternate suggestions. And I thought I would share these with you. You may want to write them down. You could have instead an anatomy reveal party. I'm not sure exactly how that would work, but that was suggestion number one. Number two, and my wife and I actually did this, you could have a zodiac reveal party. And uh, we didn't really do that, but uh, that, was, uh, that was their suggestion. So there, there's controversy with these verses about gender, but there's also controversy about gender roles in the family and in the church. Uh, not so long ago, uh, when I would meet with a couple who wanted to, to be married, wanted me to lead them in their wedding ceremony, it was expected that the vows that they would make to the Lord would be different. That there would be one set of vows for the husband and a different set of vows for the wife. But today, the request often is that the vows be exactly the same. Why is that? Because in our culture, we reject any idea, any suggestion that there might be different gender roles in marriage, and we reject that often in the church. But what if, just what if, what we have read here in Matthew, in Ephesians, rather, chapter 5, what if this were the most beautiful truth in all of the Bible? And what if these were the keys to marital satisfaction and happiness? And I contend that is the case. God has created a gender binary and I'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But God has created that, and it is a beautiful thing. And God has created roles in the marriage relationship, and those roles are critical to us understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I'll explain in a moment, and knowing the joy that God can bring in a married life. 
So you may not agree with those, but give me a few moments and let me just explain to you from Scripture why this is the case. This will be a two-parter. Today I'm really going to give you the introduction to next week. Today I want to explain how from Scripture this is a beautiful thing that God has created us man and woman. And then next week we'll talk about the specific roles that God has given to us in marriage. Now you may be thinking, Pastor, this isn't for me because I'm not married. I'm too young to be married or I'm just finished with marriage. I've done that part and I'm over. Uh, But I'm telling you, it is important. You might be thinking, it's not important for me because I've been married so long, I've got all of this figured out. But the truth is we're all male and female, male or female, and we need to know why God has created us that way. We need to understand the beauty of this creation And marriage is important to all of us because it is the basic building block of our society and it is an institution that God has created. And then finally, we should know this. This is important to us because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And that's that's going to be our most important point this morning and that's the point that's often left out. So I wanna share with you today the beauty of God's gender binary creation. Now I'm using the world's words here, the world's vocabulary, uh, but not in the way that the world uses them. Uh, So in our secular culture, sex is the biological identity indicated by your chromosomes, by your hormones, and by your anatomy. You're born male or female. But the way our world uses the words gender is not how you are born, but it is how you choose to identify as male or female or in many other ways that, uh, that people choose to identify today. Now, I'm using the words interchangeably, and, and here's why. And I'm going to show this to you throughout the message, but God, the Bible says, has created us male and female. In God's creation, there is no distinction between sex and gender. There is male sex and gender and female sex and gender. Our gender is indicated by our sex. Now, you'll see that as we go through this. Let me show you the beauty of God's gender binary creation. Point number one, God created men and women in his image for the glory of God. God created men and women, he created them in his image and for his glory. Now where you begin in this argument will determine where you end. The smart place, the right place to begin is right here, we've been created in the image of God. Now we're gonna work our way through some different verses in scripture. We can show some of these to you on the screen and the first one, is, um, is one we can show you. Genesis 1.27. Look with me. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. All people, men and women, male and female, are created in the image of God, and that is what makes us valuable. We're not valuable because of our intelligence or because of our wealth or because of our health 
or because of our age, our race, or our sex or gender. We are valuable because we've been created in the image of God. And all the people on the earth are valuable because they've been created in God's image. This is the main reason that we stand against abortion, the taking of of the life of an unborn child. That child in the womb is valuable. Why is that child valuable? Because that child has been created in the image of God. And so that That child has value. That child has full value. That child will never be more valuable because if value comes from being created in the image of God, that child will never be more in the image of God than it is right then, even before it's born. It is just as much in the image of God then as any other time in its life. And so that child is valuable. Now, some people will say, well, it's not valuable because the child is not fully developed. Well, uh, if, if we judged that way, we would have all kinds of problems. Our children's ministry this morning is filled with children who are not fully developed, right? But any one of us would give our lives to protect those children. So we're not valuable because we are fully developed. Somebody will say, well, those Those children are are not valuable because some of them are not wanted. They're not wanted. Well, our value is not determined by, by the value people place on us. Our value is determined by the value that God places on us. I'm not valuable because people love me or want me. I am valuable because God loves me. And I've been created in God's image. That's what makes us valuable. So it says here in Genesis 1:27 that men and women are created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you study the creation story in Genesis 1, you'll see that men and women first were created at different times. Uh, the man was created first, the woman was created second. You'll see that uh, men and women were created with different origins. The man was created from dust and the breath of God. The woman was created from the rib of the man. You'll see that men and women were created with different roles and responsibilities. And we're going to talk more about that a little later and and some more next week. But you'll see in the creation story that both were created explicitly in the image of God. And that determines their value. Are men and women of equal value? They're of equal value because both have been created in the image of God. And that's the only way any of us have any value. Well, then, if you continue to read the creation story, you see that not only were they both created in the image of God, but then they both sinned, right? Man and woman. And then we learn as we read the Bible that both of them were redeemed by Christ through his death and resurrection. The Bible says then in Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we are equal, man and woman, because we've both been created in the image of God, and we're equal because we've both been saved by the sacrifice of Christ. The Bible says that we are co-heirs, both of us, 
equal, man and woman, both because of how we were created and because of how we were saved. And that is a beautiful thing. We're created in the image of God. We are like God in a sense, and we represent God. No other creature, nothing else that God has created, even the powerful angels are said in scripture to be made in the image of God. That is a privilege that is only given to people, to men and to women. And we are, think about this, more like God, me and you, we are more like God than anything else in the universe. And when we talk to another person, when we think of another person, we should realize that we're talking to someone who is more like God than anything else in the universe. Men and women share that status equally. We are valuable together because we're created in the image of God. Now sometimes people will assume that men are more in the image of God than women because the Bible refers to God as our father. But that's not the case. I mean, it is the case that God, the Bible refers to God as father, but that in no way makes men, indicates that men are more created in the image of God than women. Nowhere is that even hinted at in the Bible. Here's what's interesting. God in his perfect wisdom chose to create people to be his image bearers, that we would be a signpost for God. But God created us in such a way that it takes both men and women to fully bear the image of God. I don't think I really understood this until a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I preached a series of messages on the names of God. And so I identified the different ways that God is referenced in the Old Testament and, and I think I took seven or eight of those and I just preached a message on each one, what these names of God say about the character of God. And so I came to the name El Shaddai. Do you know that name? That's the one we most often know because of the song, right? El Shaddai. And so that's one of, the, one of the Hebrew names for God. And when I began to study that and study that, uh, to study the Hebrew root uh, that, uh, that is behind the, the name of God, El Shaddai, I learned that the root is connected with, uh, with breastfeeding, with, with a nursing mom. And that surprised me a little bit. Now, it's, it's obvious what that means, that, that God, we're reminded, is the one who provides for us and, and nurtures us and takes care of us. But it wasn't until I recognized that that it, that it clicked in my mind all that Genesis 127 means, that God has created man and woman both as image of God, image bearers for God, because it takes both men and women to together show us the image of God, the full image of God that God wants us, wants us to have. So essentially, God is saying this. I wanted to create a picture of myself, something that says something about who I am and what I do. And the best way to proclaim my image was to create two image bearers 
Both will bear my image, but they will do so differently. I created man and woman. So we're both image bearers, but we're both necessary together to bear the full image of God. There's another way to see the creation of men and women as, as image bearers. Uh, we read in Matthew chapter 5 a moment ago, verse 31, which said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Are you familiar with that verse? Uh, it's a, um, it comes from Genesis chapter 2. You see the, the same thing there, verse 24, I believe. Um, so in Ephesians chapter 1, this one flesh is a picture there of the union between Christ and his church, which we're going to talk more about next week. But it can be a picture of more than one thing. And so if you go back to this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we learn something. Now, when the Bible talks about us being one flesh, it's talking about the result of a sexual union, a marital union between a man and a woman. The Bible tells us as much in 1 Corinthians 6.16. So it's saying here, you have to put your thinking caps on for a moment. It's saying here that in some way, when a man and a woman come together, that they become one flesh. Now, they're one, but they're also still two, right? Because, I mean, they're still distinct people. Uh, a husband and a wife are not... I mean, they don't actually, in every sense, become one. But the Bible says in one sense they're one, but we know in one sense they are two. My wife, Donna Deer, in one sense she and I are one, but in another sense we're two. We're in different rooms right now. I think she's over in the summit service right now. So we are both one and we are two. What do you think that's a picture of? It is a picture, at least in part, of, of the Trinity, that God is one, but we know in the, in the New Testament, he is also three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he's three. There is some distinction there. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet in some way, he is one. In some way, he is three. In some way, he is one. And we don't fully understand that, but at least there is a hint of that with man and woman coming together, one flesh, still two people it reminds us of, uh, of the Trinity. So God created men and women first so that together they could bear the image of God, but also that their union might bear the image of the Trinity. So to deny that truth, listen church, is to dishonor God. When people want to erase gender from society, or when people want to deny their gender assigned at birth, they are thumbing their nose at what God has created and what God has intended. This is not an accidental thing. This was the plan of God. And God said, I will create man and woman because that's the way I want to do it. And I want to create man and woman because only together can they bear the full image of God. And I want to create man and woman because when they come together, it is a picture of the Trinity, the, the truth that, 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 that has existed for all of eternity. 
God has done this on purpose. And for us to erase gender, whether it be in our culture or in our lives, is for us to thumb our nose at what God, what God has sought uh, to do. Part of honoring God is accepting and embracing the gender that he has assigned to us. Now, I want to introduce a little audience participation here for a moment or two. And I, I know that's not your favorite thing, but it will, um, you'll see the reason for this as we get to the end of the message. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to make a point. I'm going to say a, a sentence, and then I want you to finish it. And here's the finishing sentence. You, you ready? For the glory of God. Those services, even if you're at home, I want you to say it with me. So I'm going to say a sentence. I'm going to point to you, and you're going to say, for the glory of God. Okay, let's practice. God created men and women in his image. That's why he did it. Now let's, let's make sure we're on the same page. I'm going to try it again. God created men and women in his image. Now let's go to point number two. Men and women complement one another. Men and women complement one another. Now, watch. You ready? Men and women complement one another. That's why God has done this. God did binary two on purpose for God's glory. Now, God, have, God could have done creation any way he wanted God could have created just one sex, and uh, certainly God could have done it that way. And, and God could have created just one sex in such a way that that one sex, that one gender could fully bear his image. But God, in his wisdom, decided to create two, male and female, because that more perfectly communicates his image and his glory. The purpose of creation of man and woman, male and female, is for the glory of God. And men and women complement one another for the glory of God. Now, complement with an E. This could be confusing because I'm just talking to you. There's complement with an I that means something different. If you complement each other with an I, you say nice things about each other. If you complement each other with an E, that means you fit together. You, you complete the other person. And so God has created us so that we complement each other with an E. We, we fulfill each other. We, we are connected. We, we match each other. And he has done that for the glory of God. Now, people push back on this. And you'll hear people say, I don't need no man to take care of me. But listen... Yes, you do. And even more so, he needs you to take care of him. Okay? And I want to show that to you. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. God created, are you watching? God created men and women to need each other for the glory of God. Now, let me show this to you. The word helper, we get that all wrong in our culture. 
So we generally think of a helper as some insignificant person that isn't qualified to do anything, so that person is just helping. And so if you've got young kids, you may say to your kids, why don't you help mom cook dinner? Now, what does that mean? That means you will hand her something. I mean, that's, you're going to help dad build a doghouse. That means you're going to hand him the hammer. That, that, that means you're not capable of doing it yourself, so you are going to be the helper. But that is not how the word is used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word helper is a very sophisticated uh, concept, and I'll show that to you. First, a helper has power or resources that the helpee doesn't have. And so when it says that Eve was created to be Adam's helper, it's telling us that there was something deficient about Adam. There was something Adam couldn't do. He wasn't capable of doing. He didn't have the ability, the opportunity, the strength, the something. He didn't have it. He couldn't do it. He needed someone to come and provide what he didn't have. So when someone is a helper to someone else, it's not that one person is perfect, mature, and capable, and the other one it is not. It's that, it's that there's two, and neither one has everything needed to accomplish the task, and so only together can they do what's needed. Eve brought some power or some intellect or some ability that was necessary but lacking. This was a partnership where every part was a necessary component. So when the Bible says that Eve was created to be Adam's helper, that is not a, a slight on Eve. It is, it is saying that it took two to do the things that God had called them to do. Now, the second thing you should know about a helper is a helper in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is a person of greatest honor. King David looked to the Lord, and in Psalm 70, verse 5, he declared, Lord, you are my helper and my deliverer. A helper, the Lord is a helper. In Psalm 121, the psalmist declares confidence in the Lord, because the Lord is his helper, listen to this. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. A helper is not some insignificant person. The Lord is a helper. And we could find many other verses in the Bible that same, say the same thing. A helper is someone who should be valued and esteemed, someone who is critical to the goal and to the mission. So we see in Genesis 2.18 that man can't function alone and women can't function alone. So God has created us and assigned us roles, assigned roles to men and women, what? For the glory of God, for the glory of God. Now, before we get to the distinctions, the roles, let me, let me give you some preliminary lessons and I'll go through these pretty quickly. Number one, the roles have been corrupted by sin. When we look at Genesis chapter two, God's created man and woman, everything is perfect. But we get to Genesis chapter three and sin comes into the world. And when sin comes in, it corrupts everything, including the relationship 
between man and woman and the roles that are assigned to men and women. I'll read to you some of that corruption. Genesis 3.16, God says, I will intensify your labor pains. He's talking to Eve. You will bear children with painful effort. And so there's even corruption in a woman's relationship with her body. It would also be true a man's relationship with his body. But then the Lord goes on, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This is part of the, of the fall, of the corruption. So God has created these roles, but let's remember that sin has at least in part corrupted them. So when people point out, and somebody will write your pastor a letter this week and point this out, when people point out problems in the roles between men and women, that there's been some abuse or somebody has been taken advantage of. You know what? You're right. You're right. There are abuses because these roles have been corrupted by sin. And when men and women rebel against God, it messes up the roles. Now that brings us to number two, what the world calls traditional roles are not necessarily the God-assigned roles. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, but I, I, I just wanna, I wanna help you understand that, that when the Bible says that there are roles, what those roles are, are not necessarily what you think they are. I'll give you some examples. Somebody might say, some woman might say, I reject the roles that say that a man should work and a woman should stay home barefoot and pregnant and wait on his needs. Okay, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that those are the roles. Somebody might say, I reject that only men should be leaders and that men are more qualified in the business world. Okay. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that those are the roles. Somebody might say, I want my wife and daughters to be traditional, which means that they should focus solely on domestic duties. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say those are the roles. Now, there are roles. And this preacher next week will not shy away from explaining the roles just as they are described in scripture. But let's just remember that what we think of often as the traditional roles, that's not what we're bound to. We're bound to the roles as they are actually described in scripture. I, I think sometimes a history lesson would be helpful. Until the industrial age, which would have been the mid 18th century, maybe 1750, 1760, before that, before that most, th there was no arrangement or very seldom was there an arrangement where the woman stayed home and the men went off to work. No, the husband and wife produced goods together. Uh, if they farmed, they farmed together. If they were tailors, they did their tailoring together. If they were shoemakers, they did their shoemaking together. Both produced goods and both raised children. If we were to go a little further back in history, we could go all the way to Proverbs chapter 31, 
What does Proverbs 31 say of a godly woman? It describes her and it tells us what her job was. And I've got it, I went through it and I've listed out the different job responsibilities. She was number one, a purchasing agent. She was a real estate agent. She was an investor and an investment advisor. She was a personnel manager, a director of a nonprofit, a seamstress, an owner of a tannery, and a school teacher, okay? So let's be careful that we don't just assume that the roles are what people say the roles are. Now, they're roles, and we're not gonna shy away from them uh, next week. Uh, even if they're offensive, they're God's roles, and they're a blessing, and they are for the glory of God but they're not always what people suspect. And then the third thing, very quickly, before we get to the, uh, to the meat of this at, uh, at 1115, um, the answer to bad gender roles is not no gender roles. Uh, some people I know are already planning not to be here next week. <laughs> uh, some people are thinking, I'm not gonna come back and listen to that pastor tell me that I have to submit to my lazy, irresponsible slob of a husband. <laughs> but listen, Donna's got to come whether she wants to or not. She's the pastor's wife, right? No, I'm, uh, I'm probably not going to tell you exactly what you fear. But the important thing is that the answer to corrupted roles is not no roles. It's understanding God's assigned roles. Does that make sense? We don't need to jettison the gender roles. We need to fix the gender roles and make them match what we see in Scripture. Now, the gender roles. In the New Testament uh, passage that we just read, we see some gender roles. Uh, we'll look at them more next week, but in verse 22, it says, wives submit to your husbands. In verse 25, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, we're gonna figure out how those fit into modern marriage, but what I want to do today is to show you that, that there's a part of this that ordinarily pastors skip, and it's, it's what we find primarily in verse 32 which says the mystery, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul goes through this passage that we've just read and he talks about what men should do, women, men, women, men, women, men, women. And then he wraps it up by saying, but I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So which is it? Is this about marriage or is it about Christ and the church? Well, it is about both. It is about both. And you see that if you, if you look at it closely all the way through, even in verse 22, where it says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In verse 23, it, it talks about husbands loving their wives, wives submitting as Christ is the head of the church. All the way through this, it's about both marriage and our relationship with God. Here's why. And here's the most important thing I'll say today. Marriage is a picture. Marriage is an object lesson that proclaims good news about our relationship with Christ. Marriage is not first and foremost about procreation, and it is not first and foremost about your happiness. 
Here's the part that we don't say often enough. The part that's clear in scripture. Marriage, number one, is about portraying, picturing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you how that, how that is. But you help me before I get there. God created marriage, what? Not primarily to have children, not primarily to make us happy, but for his glory and to picture, to portray the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you how this works. In marriage, there is submission. And we'll talk about what that means next week. But that submission, one person submitting to another person and trusting another person, what is that a picture of? That is a picture of our relationship with Christ, right? I have submitted myself to Christ. I have asked him to be the Lord and the master of my life. And I trust him. I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins, but I also trust him for my provision. I trust him to direct me and to guide me and to provide for me and to safeguard me. When there is submission in a marriage, perfect submission in a marriage, it is a picture for the world to see of the submission that we have with Christ. What about unconditional and unselfish love? You know, when we marry somebody, it is for better or worse, right? Sickness or health. We marry someone and we make a commitment that we will be with them forever. We're not evaluating, or we should not be, evaluating every month whether or not we like our spouse anymore. We, we, we don't decide at the end of every year whether we want to renew the lease that we have with our spouse. No, it is an unconditional commitment. My marriage, and now listen, don't hear something I'm not saying, but my love for my wife is not based on her deserving it. My love for my wife is not based on how good a wife she has been in 2021. My love for my wife is based on a covenant I made with God 26 years ago. Why am I with my wife in 2022? Because a whole bunch of years ago, I made a covenant with God that I would live with her and that she would be my wife and I would be her husband. And that's the basis of our marriage. Now, she's been a great wife in 2021. And I, I, I love her and I love how she loves me. But the basis of our marriage is that covenant. Not how well we've done in the last year. And what's the basis of our, our relationship with God? It's not how well we've done in the last six weeks. I am a child of God today because Jesus Christ died for me. Because Jesus paid for my sins. Because Jesus has been my substitute. And that covenant, that agreement, that promise, that's why. That's why I'm a child of God. Marriage pictures the unconditional and unselfish love of God. Also, exclusivity. When I married my wife, I said, you're my woman. And she said, you're my man. And it's one man and one woman. It's this exclusive relationship. And when I, when I came to the Lord, I called him my Lord. You are the one that I will follow. Protection. A man seeks to protect his wife 
physically and spiritually. A good man in a good marriage protects his wife physically and spiritually. This is a picture of what the Lord through the Holy Spirit does for us as he as he's not finished with us, but he's sanctifying us. Provision. A husband and wife are committed to provide for each other. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if a man doesn't provide for his family, that he's worse than an unbeliever. This is a picture of how the Lord has promised to provide for his children. Forgiveness. My wife and I forgive one another, not because we've worked out uh, a, a bargain. Listen, you did this and that hurt me. So I get to do this and, and, and that'll make your hurt equal to my hurt. No, that's not how marriage works, right? I'm married. I just forgive. And that forgiveness is a picture of how God forgives us. And then he mentions oneness here. Husband and wife become one flesh inseparable. Matthew 19, 6, Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of how secure I am with Christ. Christ, I have become one flesh with Christ. Romans 8 says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God. And so the oneness of marriage pictures the oneness of our relationship with Christ. Here's, here's the point of marriage. Marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why people cry at weddings. Now, I know that's the beginning of a thousand jokes that we won't tell, but really, why do people cry at weddings? It's because weddings are emotional. You see the groom up there, and he's nervously waiting for his, uh, his bride, and then everybody stands, and the bride comes in the back door, and she has prepared herself to meet her groom. And she's beautiful, and she's walking down the aisle. And you're looking back and forth between the bride and the groom, and you're anticipating their coming together. They stand before the people, and they pledge their lives, their love for one another. And then they kiss, and they rejoice in this pure love this lifelong commitment, and it's emotional. Why? Though their love is not perfect, and you know that, you know, whether you realize it or not, that what you have just witnessed is the closest humans can ever come to depicting the love between Christ and the church. There is, this, there is this longing in us where we know deep down that's the kind of love we need. Not marriage, but that's the kind of love we need from the Father. We are made for that kind of love. We are made for that kind of acceptance. We are made for that kind of life-long, eternal union. It's not Marriage is 
it's, it's more than marriage. It is the union of God in Christ. And when we see two people get married, I think it strikes that core deep within our hearts. And God intends this. It reminds us of the longing that we have to be united with Christ. So help me out. God created marriage for the glory of God. God made us male and female. And God made us complementary in our roles. So we're going to be very practical next week. And I'm going to show you how scripture can bless your marriage day to day. But here's what I want you to do as we, as we close. I, I want you to praise God for how you're made. I want, well, let's do this. Bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to read a passage from Psalm 139. And while I read this passage, will you praise the Lord that God has made no mistake that he has created you in his image, male or female. That is part of his intentional design. And it is beautiful. And you are an image bearer. Would you thank God for how you're made? You pray, I'm going to read. David wrote, for it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All the days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast is their sum. Father, thank you for making me in your image, male or female, for the glory of God. And may my marriage, if I am married, may my marriage be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.